The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown to zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown podcast and radio show. Today, we're speaking with Aiden Moat. Did I say that right, Aiden? Indeed, you did. Thank you very much. Awesome. He is the co-founder and CEO of Hazel Technologies, Inc., a post-harvest crop protection firm that provides biochemical solutions to extend product shelf life. Well, I should say produce shelf life. Aiden, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having me on, Laura. So let's start with the problem of food waste uh, that your company is solving. So if you want to give us a little bit of background about why you want to combat this issue and uh, what the the major problems are, and then we can kind of get into the technology you're doing and your company and that sort of thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I I think for starters, it's always good to have an idea of the magnitude of, um, you know, what it is we're facing in terms of food waste. So about one third uh, of all food that is produced every year uh, goes to waste, um, which is, you know, just enormous in terms of the economic, social and environmental consequences. Um, Food is somewhere around a three trillion dollar, four trillion dollar business. Of course, I, you know, I view personally agriculture as the central business of civilization. It's the only business that's guaranteed to touch every person every day of their lives. Um, and food waste itself is close to a $2 trillion problem. From an environmental perspective, if food waste was a country, it would be the third largest producer of greenhouse gases on the planet, just behind the U.S. and China. So in an era where we grow increasingly more concerned with the impact of human activity uh, on the environment, the Anthropocene, um, food waste is a major contributor. And it's it's one of the most major untackled challenges in the world today uh, for which we have not developed satisfactory solutions to combat the problem. Now, there's you know a couple of different components to food waste. Uh, I think really you're thinking about different market segments, different supply chain segments when you think about the various contributions. So the FAO and the NRDC here in the United States has done a number of uh, studies and, and has looked at uh, sort of where these contributions come from. You can sort of lump them into, into a number of categories. You've got pre-farm gate losses, which are frequently things like uh, overproduction or mechanical damage. Uh, you have your distribution and supply chain losses, so things that happen during the storage and transit processes. Um, and then you can have sort of your retail and post-retail uh, or consumer losses where um, you are really challenging produce in, in specific at that point because uh, you have to be able to deliver ripe and edible food to the consumer. But of course, that's the food that's most in danger of going bad. Uh, And so there's a critical Mm -hmm. of the retail and consumer supply chain piece, which is why food waste is generally thought of as having what's called a dumbbell shape. Uh, Waste sort of accumulates on either end. It's either pre-farm gate, uh, food that never makes the distribution system, or it's uh, post-retail and consumer. And that's where the the, uh, waste really accumulates. So that mechanical part that you're saying there's food waste in is that like if the tractor equipment damages it when it's getting it right from the ground that's well that's one version of it certainly but uh you know if you think about it food is a bulk industry right you're never talking about one tomato 
that's sort of lovingly pulled from the ground or pulled from the vine and, and uh, cared for. Um, instead, you've got all kinds of processes. You've got, of course, human harvesting, where people are you know, trying their best to maximize yield per hour, uh, because that's typically how uh, farm workers are paid uh, in terms of bonuses per yield per hour. You've got mechanical versions of that, where you've got various uh, robotics and threshers that are pulling various types of crops. It doesn't work for all crops, obviously, but that's another piece of it. So the amount of pressure applied to any given um, piece of produce is, is something that can be a little bit variable. You've got varying stages of ripeness. So of course, uh, you know, you, you, farmers are always aiming for a particular uh, ripeness profile when they're harvesting because that enables them to guarantee consistent quality during that process. Um, but of course, you know, even within that process, sometimes you have overripe fruits that are gonna split and crack and so forth. Um, and then of course you have all of the downstream storage and transit processes. So I'm sure you've probably seen the pictures of like, you know, uh, big, big tubs full, full of thousands of peaches and thousands of apples and so forth, there's a lot of jostling and a lot of pressure and a lot of potential for damage there. So when you get splits and cracks and things like that, you have uh, pieces of food that are not going to make it downstream um, just because they're too damaged to have enough shelf life to get into the, the retail and consumption part of the chain. And then the other part of it is simply overproduction. You know, if we're, if we're wasting a third of all the food that we grow, um, then we're overproducing to feed the current populace that we have. And so one of the questions is, um, if we've got a maximum of production, if we're already producing more than we need, shouldn't we be focusing more on the distribution play, the supply chain piece that enables us to distribute that food to people that are hungry? Yeah, yeah. Like, I wouldn't want to produce less in case, you know, something bad weather happens, like something that happened in Iowa, you know, that that big weather system that came in, like if something happens and we don't want a food shortage. So I think it's like a good point where we're producing a lot of food. But then, yeah, the food waste is just crazy. And I'm sure when grocery stores are throwing it out, they're not like composting it and recycling the packaging. I'm sure they're just kind of throwing all of that out together. And then we got the landfill issue of it producing methane when the, the food is breaking down and stuff like that. So you have this company and it seems like you've been working on this and the science for a long time. And my understanding is that you've developed a packet and then the packet goes in with the fresh food and there's a chemical process that it kind of hinders. So can you tell us all about the packets and how they work? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So let me back up just a little bit and sort of um, talk about the underlying technology that goes into what we typically refer to as a sachet, uh, but packet is an equally apt descriptor. So what Hazel really does is we um, take bioactive ingredients, things that we can use to positively impact the shelf life of perishable food. Uh, and so far we've heavily focused on produce, but uh, we certainly have other interests in the perishable food space that we're moving into now. We take uh, what I like to call a solid material carrier. It's a, a material that we usually derive from natural sources. So things like sand, dirt, ash, wood, um, solid powders. We can then engineer those materials to be able to store and control the time release of the bioactives that we are interested uh, in targeting for a specific application in perishable food. Um, and then we can put that into a packaging-based form factor. So you mentioned the packet. Well, the packet is a packaging-based form factor. Um, it can be deployed in standard commercial packouts of pretty much any crop, any specialty crop, um, and then uh, begins to perform its function. So the technology that, that you're talking about, which is our flagship product, uh, we refer to as Hazel in Box um, most commonly, and relies on a technology that's referred to as ethylene inhibition. 
So ethylene, as I'm sure you, you probably are aware, is an aging hormone. It's a gas that uh, produce emits uh, as part of its natural aging cycle, and then exists in some concentration in the storage atmosphere. And that ethylene then triggers additional bioresponses in the produce that causes it to lose quality over time. So you know it, it becomes squishy, uh, and it loses color and flavor, and it becomes more susceptible to disease. So what we've done is we've taken a version of that chemistry in something that's called biomedic uh, chemistry, and we've introduced a, a very, very small amount of what's called an ethylene inhibitor into that storage atmosphere. Now, the packet contains that ethylene inhibitor, uh, and the material inside the packet is actually responsible for being able to control the time release of that gas phase ethylene inhibitor for a very long period of time, so weeks to months, depending on um, the storage conditions that we calibrate it for. In the presence of a very small atmospheric concentration of the ethylene inhibitor, um, we're able to shut down the produce response to ethylene. We're able to take control of the metabolic rate of the produce. Um, that has all kinds of positive effects, including you know, reducing the rate of water loss, um, reducing respiration, so the rate of oxidative damage, um, and generally allowing us to maintain the quality of that piece of crop uh, for the longest possible duration during storage and transit. So the power of the platform, I think, is that because we can include it directly in existing storage and transit processes uh, without you know, forcing our customers to either modify their existing logistical practices or to invest in extreme capital uh, in order to be able to try to, to overcome this problem, we can functionalize their existing storage spaces uh, their packers and, and operators can simply include our, our packets with the standard packaging, um, and then we do this ethylene inhibition biochemistry, and without adding any new chemicals to the food supply, because this is all atmospheric chemistry, we're able to extend the shelf life of produce. That's pretty cool. And what do you do with the packets afterwards? So do they go to a grocery store, and then the grocery store like removes them? Yeah, I mean, it's important to remember that this is sort of a bulk application, right? So when you go to the grocery store, you're not typically buying a full case of tomatoes, right? You're buying one tomato. Uh, so the retailers typically will already break down master cases into saleable quantities, which means that the packets are being removed um, either at the DC, the distribution center, or at the, the retail outlet themselves as part of the natural process of, of retail workers removing produce from the packaging and putting it into the storage units or the, the storage displays. Can they be used like more than once or are they, do they have like a, a shelf life themselves kind of thing? They're actually fully recyclable. But yeah. The downside is we've, we've made this so cheap and so earth friendly that um, there's almost no benefit to recycling them. So the contents of the packet are biodegradable. Um, there's no more chemistry remaining once, uh, once it's performed its single function. Um, the packet itself is made of food grade paper. Uh, which is in and of itself recyclable. And if if our customers wanted to, they could literally take every single sachet out, send it back to our facility, and we could just recharge it and do the whole thing over again. But so far, that oh. has to be value added. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I I think like is this going to cost money? Like when you add something or add new technology to food, often these things are passed on to the consumers in price. So are customers going to have to pay more for their food if? we are using this technology? That's a, So it's a really great question. Um, it's also a bit complicated, and I'm, I'm happy to walk through the logic of it real briefly. So the answer is, the short answer is no. The short answer is we don't anticipate a consumer having to pay a suddenly higher price for a given produce item. Um, some, you know, there are some ifs, ands, or buts around that. So for example, um, you wouldn't think twice about paying, or maybe you would, but don't let me 
you know, color your perspective, but a lot of people wouldn't think twice about paying 150 times the list price of a conventional avocado for an organic avocado. Why is that? Well, because there's a perception that the organic avocado is better in some way, whether it's better for the environment or better for consumer health or whatever it is. And I won't comment on the science of that quite yet, but uh, the point being that there are a lot of instances in which consumers have been shown to be, to you know, to have price flexibility in terms of things that they perceive as higher quality. Of course, that is attractive to growers and packers, but that's not really what we're here to achieve. The the more complex answer, which I'll keep very brief, just to just to be concise is that when retailers think about how they price food, it's the question of what is the average price per pound that I'm able to sell that at for what period of time, right? So I'm sure you've gone to grocery stores and you've looked at produce and you've said, oh, um, asparagus is $2.99 a pound at list price. I probably won't buy that asparagus at $2.99 a pound because I think six weeks from now, it's gonna be 99 cents a pound. And instead of buying asparagus, I can buy green beans right now while they're cheap. The dinner plate is highly elastic for most consumers. So the grocery store is interested in a scenario where um, can they charge, say, for example, $250 a pound all year round instead of uh, these highly fluctuating quality prices. And thus they can move, in theory, they can move the same volume, but at a higher average price, not necessarily at a higher price overall. And so that becomes the question is, what are we really discounting when we buy discount food? Are we discounting um, based purely on our, our dinner plate dollars, or are we discounting based off of availability? Are we discounting based off of environmental impact and so forth? So I will, I'll stop there because that gets into a whole morass of, of consumer behaviors. But the point is that at no point should the price of that asparagus become $5.99 a pound just because they're using my product. I think it would save money overall because you are cutting down on the food waste cost. So I'm sure grocery stores are never happy to throw out a bunch of food that just didn't sell. So if they're kept um, fresh longer, then they have a better chance of selling and then there's less money lost, right? Yeah, that's that's exactly the plan. And the only thing yeah. I'll add to that is that there's a market complexity there, which is historically, and this is not good for anybody, I think, historically, retailers have tried to overcome the cost of that loss by passing it back to the grower and packer because retailers like to, like to exist as just distributors they like to exist as people who can turn over their inventory every 72 hours and they never have to suffer any losses if they can reject a shipment or downgrade a shipment or what have you. So that means there's a vested interest in the grower packer community to ensure quality arrivals so that the grocery stores don't have to pass those costs back to the grower packers and don't have to pass them on to the consumers in the form of markup to cover waste losses. So the way that we think of it is if we can, if we can connect with all three of those participants in the supply chain, the the growers themselves, the retailers, and the consumers, we can smooth out all the bumps in that economic roadmap, and we can indeed realize the scenario you just described, which is, hey, this should actually cost less. Yeah. You mentioned asparagus. So can you tell us why asparagus is so carbon intensive? Because I think it's one of the worst veggies, is it? It is. It is. It's about 5x the carbon intensity of almost any other green vegetable. Yeah, so that's really surprising to me. So why why is that? Air shipment is the is the number one culprit. So um, the majority of asparagus that's consumed, uh, really in the world at this point, um, is shipped from Peru to the United States. Uh, it's the it's one of the major um, supply chains, and and, these, and the United States loves asparagus. We don't grow that much of it ourselves. Mexico grows a bit as well, but Peru has hectares and hectares and hectares of field that grow asparagus. But the shelf life of asparagus is so flimsy 
that instead of being able to ship on a water route, um, say from Lima to you know Los Angeles or what have you, um, which is a process that takes a couple of weeks, uh, they're forced to airship the majority of asparagus, especially during, uh, say, the U.S. winter season when when asparagus demand continues to to run, but we're not actually growing any in country ourselves. You know, the Michigan season is over, the SoCal season is over, et cetera. So the majority of asparagus consumed, um, particularly in the Americas, but, but this actually impacts the worldwide economy, uh, is air shipped, and air shipments have a tremendously higher carbon footprint than water shipments. Yeah, I didn't, uh, I didn't know that about asparagus at all. You, know, it's funny how we just see all of this food in our grocery stores, and we don't really sometimes think about the whole backstory of it, right? Uh, which can be pretty interesting. So what other foods are you working on? So you can put the sachets into a box of asparagus coming from Peru mm -hmm. and it will, it will extend the life. So does that mean it's going to be possible to ship the asparagus instead of fly the asparagus? Is that sort of the goal? Yeah, that's very much the game plan. Uh, we're, we're actively working with asparagus providers today uh, to optimize their programs for water shipment so that we can take the carbon footprint from, you know, I think it's 5.47 kilograms of CO2 per kilogram of asparagus or something like that, uh, down to the more towards the one kilogram of CO2 per kilogram of, of asparagus, which is very common for other green vegetables. So we're actively working with them and we have similar programs in quite a lot of crops. So, you know, you ask what else are we working with? We, we cover a lot, uh, everything from, you know, temperate crops. So apples, cherries, pears, uh, we do a lot of stone fruit, uh, and right now we're working with a lot of stone fruit providers to increase the quality of the, the U.S. stone fruit program. Um, I don't know if you know this, but peaches as an industry in the United States has been on the ropes for the better part of about 15 years, um, and we're trying to, to save the U.S. peach. Um, we what, what's wrong with the peaches? Yeah, so there, this is like a classic conundrum in U.S. shipping. So, um, you know, as you're probably aware, the U.S. is a huge landmass. I mean, compared wait, to wait, wait, wait. Can, can I guess? Is it because sure. they get so mushy so fast? Because even in Ontario, we can grow peaches here and they're really difficult to bring home. Like they, one will get a bruise and then the fruit flies come like they're, they're difficult. I don't know. Am no. I guessing right? No, that's exactly what it is. So th this is like a classic story in U.S. agriculture. The, the best peaches in the U.S. are grown in like Carbondale, Illinois, and that's just outside of Salt Lake City, Utah. And you've never seen a peach from those cities because they can't, you can't ship them for more than a day or two before they go bad. And what makes a peach good, and this is a scientific concept for you, um, is specifically what's called the bricks content. Bricks is a measure of how much sugar is in the peach. And the higher the bricks, the, the better that peach is. So in the United States, because we have such a huge land mass and our shipping requirements are so large to get anything cross country, um, pickers of peaches historically have had to pick peaches at very low bricks content uh, and very high firmness in order to be able to get them to ship. It's the same story with tomatoes. We have the same problem with tomatoes. So Aiden, are there specific researchers or universities that you're currently working with? Yeah, quite a few. Um, and not just nationally, but also internationally. So, you know, I particular, we've worked heavily with uh, the ag programs at Cornell, uh, UC Davis, um, OSU, and WSU, that's uh, Washington State University and Oregon State University uh, here in the U.S. University of Florida has the Institute of Food and Agricultural Studies. Um, and then there are similar sort of either co-op or land grant or, or ag research universities all over the world. So um, we've been privileged 
people from Wageningen in the Netherlands, uh, King's College in, in England, uh, Universidad de Foggia, um, with uh, one of the premier universities in Chile, one in Peru as well. So we, you know, we find those academic connections to be um, extremely valuable, uh, not just in validating our, our technology, but also in communicating uh, with the the growers and the packers themselves because they they publish fact sheets and they engage in in uh, distribution of their research and, and so forth. It's one of the primary channels by which farmers get good technical information, uh, particularly on how to deal with things post-harvest. Mm-hmm. Chile and Peru have amazing food. Uh, I love I love all the stuff that they grow down there and they can grow like such a variety of things, which is pretty awesome. Um, I think it was, was it UC Davis that has the website where you can um, kind of look at how to grow different food? There's like a free z- resource or something, right? Yeah. So a lot of universities have those, but UC Davis, I think probably has the most uh, comprehensive and widely recognized. And they not only publish a number of farming practices, but they actually publish a number of best practices for post-harvest storage and shipment. So it's, you know, things like, hey, I've got, I'm growing plums. I want to what's the best way to store plums after I've harvested them uh, to match my shelf life. So I, I, off the top of my head, I don't remember the link of it, but I know that the, uh, the UC Davis Ag Extension uh, publishes quite a number of what I like to call care sheets uh, for different types of crops uh, on their main website. Nice. And uh, you're, you're working on something as well when it comes to meat. Yeah. So we, you know, we, we started off as a, as a play purely towards extending the shelf life of, of crops post-harvest. But our, our technology platform allows us to deliver actives into a wide range of different types of storage environments. And, and we're also capable of deploying um, a number of different types of actives, not just uh, ethylene inhibition technologies and things like that. So we um, we had developed originally an antimicrobial, broad spectrum antimicrobial technology that we're currently marketing uh, in the berry category. Um, it's a clamshell pad replacement uh, that goes into individual clamshells of berries, and then it can release antimicrobial vapors again. You know, in a non-contact system, um, these are actually plant-derived compounds, so they're they're uh, not only natural, but we're getting the product uh, certified organic as well, um, so to be able to impact that market. Um, and so when we, when we designed that product, that was our original intent, but then we started talking to a number of people that are in the protein space and and we came to realize they have a very similar packaging arrangement with very similar packaging. And there is a similar, uh, problem in proteins, something we call total plate count. So it's at a certain point in a, in a, in the life cycle of a piece of cut protein, let's say you got a steak or something, um, they're going to swab it and they're going to check and see what's the total amount of microbial load. Uh, that they can they can find on that, and then they're going to use that to calculate what the final shelf life of that particular steak is. So if you can uh, restrict or slow down the progress of that total plate count, you can extend shelf life. And so we're actually going into commercial pilots right now with our first couple of customers uh, with the goal of adding an additional four plus days of shelf life to any particular piece of cut protein using that same antimicrobial technology. Wow, cool. And so is that going to replace the little pad that goes under the meat sometimes? You know that one I'm talking about? Yeah, so that's exactly what, I mean, you've nailed it. The, we, what we're really interested in a lot of times is how do we take a form factor that already exists, you know, like that little soaker pad that they put in there currently, and functionalize it, right? Because that way, the we know that the producers already have the right equipment set up uh, to be able to not only manufacture it, but also to put it into the uh, the stack of packaging 
from those current pieces. Um, and so if we can take something that already exists and we can add a new level of functionality to it, a new level of biotechnology, um, we've minimized the, the disruption and the cost of deploying that technology and we've functionalized a traditional storage environment to actually be able to extend shelf life. So the idea would be that you, would, you wouldn't really notice a difference as a consumer, but you would uh, be able to buy something where instead of having just a non-functional soaker pad, you had something that was actually active in preserving the shelf life of that food. Mm-hmm. I, I don't like those little pads because uh, it's just so it's just so complicated because you kind of have to throw it out, right? But I also think it's probably a lot of cellulose, so I'm not sure how much plastic is actually in those little pads. But yeah, it would be cool if yeah, they were yeah. maybe more biodegradable. It's a it's a really good point. You, so what's interesting is you've you've touched upon a a classic problem that actually we're trying to get to the bottom of, which is one of the reasons why plastics have proliferated through uh, the supply chain in such a way is that um, high density plastics are fantastic uh, at doing a lot of things. They're fantastic at being oxygen barriers and water transmission barriers and things like that, which means that they help actually extend shelf life of a lot of different types of food. So one of the reasons why plastic films and wraps and so forth have become so prevalent um, is that they actually do serve a function in keeping food fresh. So one of our philosophies is, well, look, if we can, if we can stop relying on the, the properties of that particular barrier so heavily, and we can instead introduce a new functionality that enables us to extend shelf life in a similar way, um, maybe then we don't have to be as reliant on heavy plastics for packaging. And, and that's something that I think the industry is really wanting to move towards um, using biodegradables and using other things that don't quite have the same robustness in terms of material parameters, but are, of course, you know, biodegradable or at least recyclable. Um, so, yeah, we, we really have little interest. And then I will say to your point, actually, good thought. The soaker pads typically aren't the worst part of that packaging, right? It's the styrofoam and it's the plastic wrap. And that's that's where if you can start to get away from that, for sure, um, we start to lower our reliance on on non-recyclable and, and uh, heavy plastics inputs. So, yeah, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And, and we hope that the use of our technology will usher in uh, the ability of these producers to use less of that packaging material overall. Yeah, which is is a good thing. So, uh, Aiden, you, you have a whole career um, in chemistry. So can you tell us a little bit about your background? And uh, I think you have a Ph.D. in chemistry, right? I do, in fact. Uh, I got my PhD at Northwestern in 2016. It's kind of an interesting journey for me. I, I started chemistry as an undergraduate at Emory, uh, Emory University, Atlanta. I did my bachelor's and my master's uh, as an undergraduate uh, with uh, Dr. Cora Macbeth, Professor Cora Macbeth, doing um, what's called organometallic uh, synthesis. So I was a pretty hardcore synthetic chemist. Um, went into industry for a few years after I finished my master's, uh, didn't really want to go to graduate school. Then after about three years, I decided that, uh, graduate school did in fact seem to be a better way to further my career. So I applied to and was accepted to Northwestern where my PhD focused mostly on, um, indeed sustainability chemistry. Uh, so I was doing things like designing new catalyst systems, uh, to, upgrade renewable feedstocks into platform chemicals and, and sort of reduce our dependency on, on petroleum-derived chemistry, um, things of that nature. And then, of course, that led me into being uh, a fellow for the Institute for Sustainability and Energy at Northwestern, which is where I first started to get more exposure to broader sustainability challenges um, and became interested in, in forming Hazel with the other co-founders. So I went from, you know, 
a really purely chemical background uh, with really almost no agricultural intersection whatsoever uh, to deciding that uh, I think that the, the, the ability that I have to apply chemistry into the field of agriculture and do it using these same principles of sustainability and, and uh, you know, eco-friendly parameters uh, is, a, is sort of a huge pivot in my life that happened in the most recent five years or so. That's awesome. I think it's fantastic to go into STEM and then use that to, you know, make the world a better place or help the environment. Uh, maybe that's overlooked sometimes when people are picking their majors and they might choose something like, you know, environmental studies. But if you actually choose something like science or engineering, uh, it can actually lead to some really cool technologies like Hazel. So that's awesome. Um, so Aiden, uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. This has been really cool. And, uh, very, very exciting to learn that you're extending uh, produce shelf life. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Laura. Awesome. That was Aiden Moat. He is the co-founder and CEO of Hazel Technologies, Inc. They're working on extending produce shelf life. Thanks, Aiden. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast.